Now, brothers and sisters, I'd invite you to take out your Bibles with me. I'd also invite those who are watching online to take out a Bible and look at it with us. I think you'll profit more if you look at a copy of Scripture as we read along. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on the pew in front of you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. This morning we're asking this question. How should we think about our bodies? How should we think about our bodies as human beings, as Christians? You ever think about that? How should we think about our bodies? How should we view our bodies? We're always talking here about spiritual reality. I'm always encouraging you to focus on the spiritual over the physical, right? We, we constantly teach, we constantly preach, do not live according to your flesh. And so, in light of all that, how should we think about these bodies that God has given us? Throughout history, there have been many philosophies about how to treat and how to take care of and how to view the human body, many of which disagree with one another. For thousands of years, a philosophy that has become very popular in many different circles called dualism has taught that all physical material is bad and everything spiritual is good. Everything physical is bad and everything spiritual is good. You can kind of see the influence of this philosophy in Eastern religions where they try to detach themselves completely from anything physical. Contrast that with the Greeks who idolized the human body and were constantly in search of that perfect human form. You can see it from art from the time and their obsession with athletics. They idolized the human body. They lifted it up to a place that it never should have been too prominent. Some have believed, and this is a very popular belief today, that the body is just a shell for the real you. Your body is not the real you. What's inside is the real you. The body's just a shell. This has even grabbed such a hold on modern culture that there are people who believe they are trapped in the wrong body. And they need to get something done to that body to change it, to mirror what they feel like they actually are. And then many believe that it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies because they're going to be destroyed anyway. They're going to die and decay. So it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Just treat it as a uh, commodity that's going to eventually run out. and Just do whatever you want with it. And so how should we as Christians think about our bodies? Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. Let's read our text. The word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul, verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh." But he who is joined to the Lord 
becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A few things I want you to take away this morning from our text. A few lessons. The first is this. What you do with your body affects your soul. What you do with your body affects your soul. Now look with me for a moment back in your text at verses 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13 are kind of tricky for us as we read our Bibles because of these quotation marks that you see doesn't matter what translation you have. You should have quotation marks in verse 12 around the phrase, all things are lawful for me. Do you see that? And then those quotation marks end, and Paul goes on to say, but not all things are helpful. He does this in verses 12 and 13. Here's what he's doing. Paul is taking a phrase or a philosophy that became popular in Corinth, and he's trying to correct it. And so when Paul says, all things are lawful for me, he's not saying that about himself. He's saying that was something the Corinthian believers were saying. That's something the Corinthian believers are believing. And he's trying to correct this distorted truth that they have come to believe. All right? That's what he's doing when we see the quotation marks. He's quoting one of their own popular philosophies. Now, we'll come back to verse 12 here in just a moment. But I want to start off with verse 13. And the quotation there, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now, there's a debate on where these quotation marks should end. Some translations extend them on further, and I think those translations are right. In the Greek, in the original language, you don't see these quotation marks, so you have to kind of decipher where are they supposed to be. You have to interpret, and people do these things who really know their their languages. But I think these quotation marks should extend on to his phrase where he says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The reason I think those quotation marks should include that phrase too is because the Corinthian believers were starting to believe that it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies because God's going to destroy them. It doesn't matter what we do because they will eventually die and decay. So we can do whatever we want with them. They were saying, our bodies are physical things with physical desires. So why does it matter how we satisfy those desires? God's going to destroy this body. So what's the big deal? It's kind of like the way some people treat the environment today, right? Now, I don't want you to hear this and go full hog environmentalistic on me, but there's another distorted view. Some people care way too much about the environment, but there's another distorted view that says it doesn't matter what we do on this earth. It doesn't matter what we do to this planet because God will eventually destroy it anyway. So just live it up. Do whatever you want. Well, no, God's given us this planet to steward, to take care of. And so there is a sense in which we should take care of the world that God has given us. But this is the Corinthian distortion here. They're believing that it doesn't matter what we do with these physical bodies. It's a physical body. It has nothing to do with spiritual reality, and it's going to die and decay anyway. So what's the big deal? The physical and the spiritual to them had nothing to do with one another. What we do with our bodies, they thought, does not affect our souls, does not affect our relationship with God. But Paul says otherwise. Paul says, what you do with your body 
affects your soul. Look at verse 16. It's a very interesting application of this in verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Where is that written? You know, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. You remember hearing that? Genesis 2.24. God speaks of the first husband and wife, the first marriage, and every marriage after that by saying, for this reason, the husband will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so when a marriage happens, there is a uniting together of two people. Two become one. It's physical, yes. It's physical, but it's more than just physical. It's also spiritual. It's the uniting of two souls, two hearts to one. And the physical act that unites two bodies is actually meant to unite the souls as well. You see, when two bodies are united in a physical act of intimacy, brothers and sisters, there's something going on there more than just the physical. The world today will try to get you to believe that all that's going on is physical. It's only a physical act and nothing more. But God's word says otherwise. It's a spiritual act. When two people unite their bodies in an act of intimacy, it's a spiritual act as well. God created it like this. Why? He created it like this so that one man and one woman would stay with each other for their entire lives. God meant the act of physical intimacy to be a sort of spiritual glue that keeps people together, that keeps husbands and wives married to one another. It doesn't always work like that. Sin infects everything in this world. And so there have been imperfect marriages and imperfect acts and imperfect bodies. But that's the ideal. The ideal is for one man and one woman only to share intimacy with each other for their entire lifetimes. And that intimacy is intended to keep them together for their entire lives. People, this is the problem with sex outside of marriage. This is why it hurts so bad. Because God intended the physical act of intimacy to be between one man and one woman for one lifetime and to keep them together. And so when two people unite their bodies and those two people are not husband and wife, they experience all kinds of pain and all kinds of heartache, and all kinds of consequences, both emotional and physical. Because God meant for this to keep husbands and wives together. God meant for it to be like that. And so when it says one flesh, it means more than just the physical. It means spiritual as well. And it's not just married people who need to understand this. In fact, it's especially those of us who are not married who need to understand this. But he also says the same principle in verse 19. What you do with your body affects your soul. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit that you have living within you? So, brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian today... You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And what that means is, your body is the dwelling place of God. Your body is the dwelling place of God if you are a Christian today. 
And so it is an extremely serious thing how we treat our bodies and what we use our bodies for because it's the dwelling place of God. Do you remember how seriously Jesus took it when people defiled the temple? You remember that story? Jesus in the temple, he sees the money changers. He sees people buying and selling and cheating other people and being greedy and selfish. What does he do? He gets angry, really angry. He sits down and he fashions a whip to use to drive the animals out of the temple. He flips over the tables of the money changers and says, you will not use my father's house like this. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And if Jesus takes it that seriously, that a a physical building that was a temple, and they were desecrating it, if Jesus takes that, that seriously, do you think God does not take it seriously when we desecrate the temple of the Holy Spirit by using our bodies for sexual immorality. It's a serious thing the way we use our bodies. What you do with your body affects your soul. Your body and your soul is connected. You can't separate the two. They will only ever be separated at death. But even after death and after Jesus' return, your soul will be reunited to your body. And you will receive a new body that is different than the one it is now. But soul and body will be reunited. We can't separate these two. But we try to. We we understand this in other areas of life. Think about it. What you eat, what you eat affects your mood. It affects your energy. It affects the, the way you go about your day. How much sleep you get. How much exercise you get. Think about in the Bible how physical sins of the body are often taught as spiritual sins. Laziness, or we sometimes call it sloth in in the Bible. It's it's spoken of in the Bible as a spiritual sin, not just a physical one. Gluttony, which is just eating food, too much of it, indulging too much, caring too much about that. It's not just a physical sin. It's spoken of as a spiritual sin. So what we do with our bodies, brothers and sisters, affects our souls. Second lesson I want you to take away from our text. Your body was not meant for sexual immorality. Your body was not meant for that. It was meant for the Lord. Look at verse 12 with me. Coming back to verse 12, this first quotation where Paul says, The Corinthians have been saying, All things are lawful for me. He actually quotes it twice. All things are lawful for me. That was something the Corinthians were believing. And what that means is, they were sitting there saying, We've become Christians, so we have freedom in Christ. So we can do whatever we want because of freedom in Christ, right? Now, there's an element of truth to that. We do have freedom in Christ. Think about the Jewish person of Jesus' day, of Paul's day, who becomes a Christian. Well, all of a sudden, that Jewish person, they are not supposed to follow the Old Testament law code anymore, They don't have to make sacrifices, animal sacrifices for their sins. They don't have to keep every festival. And they're praising the Lord because all of a sudden they can eat bacon, right? It's it's a difference in the the ceremonial way that they they are called to worship God. Jesus came and fulfilled the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. And so we are no longer under those ceremonial laws where we have to offer sacrifices and keep every festival and stay away from certain foods that would make us unclean. Jesus is the proper fulfillment of all of that. 
And if you, if you know your New Testament, you know Paul had to work really hard to convince Jews that they didn't have to do that anymore. Because think about a Jewish person whose mom and dad and grandparents and great-grandparents had always lived under the Old Testament law. Paul had to work really hard to convince them, no, no you don't need to live like that. He actually had to work hard to convince Gentiles that they, need, they didn't need to become Jews to be Christians. They didn't need to place themselves under the Old Testament law. So there is a level of truth in this. There was a freedom that came with Jesus and his death and resurrection. But the Corinthians had fallen into believing that this freedom in Christ meant a freedom to sin. Freedom in Christ means I'm free to do whatever I want. There's no commandments. There's no laws anymore. It no longer matters what we do. Everything is okay. Well, Paul says, yes, you are free in Christ, but, verse 12, you're not free to do the things that harm yourself or others. Yes, you're free in Christ, but you can't use your freedom to enslave yourself to something. Listen to Paul's words in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Are we under law today? Yeah, but it's not the Old Testament law. It's the law of love, the law of Christ, and how we are to love one another and love God with all our hearts and souls and minds and strength. Brothers and sisters, we have a tendency to enslave ourselves. All of us do. We have a tendency to enslave ourselves. That's the the most important lesson about freedom in Christ. Paul is trying to work against our tendency to enslave ourselves. All of us have it. But all of us usually tend toward one way or the other. One way of enslaving ourselves or the other. You see, some of us tend to enslave ourselves in sin and licentiousness. Just embracing and indulging in sin. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not like that, so I don't have a tendency to enslave myself. No, yeah, you do. It's just some others have a tendency to enslave themselves under rules and legalism. Commands that that were never intended to apply to us. They go, go further than the Bible, and they want to place themselves under legalistic rules. We have a tendency to enslave ourselves in one direction or the other. Both are distortions of the gospel. On the one hand, you have those who tend toward legalism, who think we must work our way into heaven. So let's, let's pile on the rules. And the best rule keepers are the ones that God loves the most. right? But on, on the other hand, you have the people who are, are presuming upon God's kindness. And because of forgiveness and grace, we can just sin all we want. Right? We have a tendency to enslave ourselves in one of these two ways. Both are distortions of the gospel, but you see, in the middle stands Jesus Christ. In the gospel, Jesus comes to us from the Father, John 1 says, full of grace and truth. The person who tends toward legalism needs a healthy dose of grace. The person who tends toward sin and licentiousness needs a healthy dose of truth. Jesus comes to us full of grace and truth. These ways we enslave ourselves are common to all. But here in 1 Corinthians, to these believers, Paul says, Jesus set you free from sin. 
But he didn't set you free to sin. See the difference? Jesus set you free from sin, but he didn't set you free so that you could sin. He set you free from it. Look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13, we've already highlighted this already, but they were saying the stomach is meant for food and food for the stomach. So our bodies are meant for satisfying these physical desires, right? We've got physical desires. That's what the body's for, for satisfying our physical desires. Now, this is a very popular belief today, a very popular belief today. The belief that God has given me these physical desires So it can't be wrong for me to satisfy them. You ever thought that before? You ever talked to someone who thought that before? God's given me these desires. It can't be wrong for me to satisfy them. They're natural. They come naturally. I didn't even ask for them. So it can't be wrong. I have a desire to eat, so I eat. We have a desire for other things, and so we satisfy our body's desire for those other things. It can't be wrong. Brothers and sisters, there's a fundamental biblical principle that the world is completely missing today when it comes to this idea that God made us this way, so it must be okay. When sin came into the world, Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered the world, it cursed and affected everything. You remember Genesis 3? How God said to Adam, the ground's not going to just produce for you anymore. You're going to have to work it by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be frustrating for you. It's not just going to produce. He said to Eve, Eve, you're going to have pain in childbearing. Now, it's not just going to be easy. It's going to be painful. And I think that applies not only to the the pregnancy aspect of it and the the birth of the child, but the rearing of children. But it, it affected everything. There's all kinds of things that are wrong with this world because of the entrance of sin into it, including our desires. Our desires fell with the fall. And so all of us in here, every single one of us, have what we would call natural desires that we have to say no to for the purpose of godliness. Yours might be different than mine. You know, some of you might have to say no to the natural desire to punch someone in the face when they make you mad, Right? But everybody's got their their desires that they've got to say no to. For some of us, it's a desire toward lust and to satisfy that physical desire within us. For some of us, it's a desire to overindulge in food or drink. For some of us, it might be homosexual desires that we didn't ask for, that we never wanted. And yet they're there and we still have to say no to them for the purpose of godliness. But it does not make sense when you read the Bible, to say, God made me this way, so it must be okay for me to fulfill these desires. No. Sin has distorted our desires. And so Paul is saying, your body is not meant to satisfy desires. Your body was meant for the Lord. Your body was meant to glorify God. Think about this. Sometimes God will even ask us to sacrifice a good desire for the purpose of godliness. Think about fasting. Sometimes God will even ask us to go without food, to not satisfy our desire to eat. And I'm not talking about overindulging or gluttony, just just to eat. Sometimes God will ask us to fast for the purpose of godliness, to give up a good desire for Him, because our bodies were not meant to satisfy physical desires. Our bodies were meant to glorify God. Look at verse 18 with me in your text. Verse 18. Once again, he says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Sexual sin is different from other kinds of sin, Paul says. Sexual sin is against our own bodies, against this temple of the Holy Spirit, this dwelling place of God. And so, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it. Get as far away from it as you can. Don't trust your flesh. Don't trust your strength to resist it. Run away. Distrust yourself. Jesus said it to the apostles. The spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. Don't trust yourself in the presence of temptation. Get away from it. Run away from it. Let's be like Joseph, who when Potiphar's wife grabbed him by the clothes and said, come to bed with me, he ran away. And it didn't even matter that she still had his cloak. He ran away from it because he didn't trust himself, because he knew if he stayed, I'm in a dangerous place because of my own desires, my own sinful desires. It's dangerous. Run away from it. I once heard of a, a man who was teaching young people about sexual purity. And one of the, the young men in the, the audience raised his hand and asked a question. He said, um, how far can me and my girlfriend go before we cross the line into sin? And, and in just a brilliant moment of epiphany, this guy responded to that young man and said, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not how close to the line can we get without sinning. The question should be how far away from the line can we get? How far away from it can we get? Brothers and sisters, do not play with fire when it comes to sexual immorality. Do not place yourself in situations where you will be tempted. You might need to delete some things off your phone. You might need to get rid of your access to certain movies and television shows. Do not trust yourself. Do not trust your own ability to resist. Flee from sexual immorality. Our bodies were not meant for sexual immorality. They were meant for the Lord. Finally this morning, I want you to see this one phrase in verse 19. We titled the sermon this. At the end of verse 19, he says, You are not your own. You are not your own. This is perhaps the greatest motivation for staying away from sexual immorality. You are not your own. Your body is not yours. It's like a college football coach who's having his first team meeting or his first practice with his college football team. And he says, gentlemen, from this day forward, your rear ends are mine. And I want them lean and mean. And so you're going to eat like we tell you to eat. And you're going to sleep like we tell you to, to sleep. And you're going to exercise and weightlift like we tell you to, because when it comes time for game day, I want those bodies in prime physical condition for performance. And if you don't do it, you're going to have me to answer to, right? It's a good college football coach, right? Now, while the Christian life is not about performance in the way that college sports is, the principle still rings true. Your body is not your own. The college athlete who places themselves under a coach for a time, is temporarily signing away their, their own control over their own body. But brothers and sisters, none of us, none of us own our bodies. Your body's not your own, it's God's. Your body is not your own, it is God's. And so you have no right to use God's property for sexual immorality. You have no right. It's not your decision to make. It's not yours. It's God's. Think about this with me for a second. If I were to loan you my car 
Would it be appropriate for you to enter it in a demolition derby? Of course not, right? If I were to have you house sit over at my house and I, I left for the weekend, would it be appropriate for you to host a huge party and trash the place? Of course not. It's not yours, right? It's mine. Your, your body is something that God has given to you for you to steward, but it's his. That is his body. God doesn't have a body. I'm saying that's his property. And so you have no right to choose to use it for sexual sin. Your body is not your own. It is the Lord's. But what does he say right after you are not your own? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Brothers and sisters, in a sense, we are doubly his. Because he made us, and then he bought us. What do you mean he bought us? He bought us for the greatest price anyone has ever paid for anything in the history of the world. Think about purchasing power and money and exchange and bartering. What is money and value but, but a, a determination of what something can get in exchange for it? Why is something valuable here on this earth? Why are there valuable things? Well, it's because of rarity. Something is rare, right? Diamonds are valuable because they are rare. If diamonds were just as plentiful as stones, well, they, they wouldn't be as, as expensive, They wouldn't be worth as much, but they're rare. Brothers and sisters, what is the rarest substance this earth has ever seen? What is the most valuable substance this world has ever seen? What substance has the greatest purchasing power of any substance that this earth has ever seen? It's the blood of Jesus Christ. You were bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ. And so the way that you use your body is not just some peripheral issue to Christianity. No, it's a gospel issue, the way you use your body, because Jesus died for those bodies. Jesus died so that God bought you, bought your body. It's His now, doubly His when we really consider it. And the price that He paid for it was the blood of Jesus. And so... Glorify God with your body. Don't use it for sin. Use it for God. Because He paid for it with the blood of Jesus, the most precious substance this world has ever seen. Here in just a moment, I'm going to ask every single one of us to spend some time in silent prayer, responding to the Lord, to what He's given to each one of us just now. What has He laid on our hearts? It's probably different for every single one of us. But we're going to have a time of private response where every single one of us is going to respond to God's Word to our hearts this morning, to what the Holy Spirit is laying on us this morning. And so after we spend a few moments in silent prayer, in personal response to God, then we'll have a time where we come back together, we stand and sing, and have a time of public response for anyone who needs to respond publicly. But before that, let's pray for a few moments silently.